Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Hello everyone and welcome back. Today is the first of a two-part look at Irish fairy lore, featuring a number of different stories. This is an absolutely huge topic here, one of such size that I reckon you could, with ease, do a podcast solely on this. So, Irish fairies may crop up in later episodes as well, but across these two episodes I'm going to tell a collection of shorter stories to give you just a flavour, a pre-appetiser appetiser of the absolute banquet that is Irish fairy lore. Because this is such a big theme to introduce, I'm going to flip the format of this episode around. I'm going to lead with the inexpert discussion section, and then just do a little conclusion to each of the stories. So if the discussion bit's the bit you hate most about the podcast, well, that's fair enough. Fairy enough. Right, that's enough puns, I think. Anyway, I'm sorry. It's not going to be the shortest discussion section either. Stories are coming very soon, I promise, but I just want to give this the full attention it deserves. Maybe if you just want the stories, skip 20 minutes ahead, and you can get into them. Quick disclaimer at the top of the programme, I will be generalising a lot about fairy lore across Ireland here. No culture is a monolith, and Ireland is certainly no exception to that. And in fact, much fairy lore is very specific to a small area. But I've got limited time, so please accept that this isn't perfect. Also important to note, when I'm talking about Ireland, I will be referring to the island of Ireland, that's the 32 counties of Ireland, and that's why I'm going to be using this term throughout these two episodes unless specified otherwise. I recorded this discussion section and realised it was a little dry in its analysis of the fairies. I still think it's interesting and I hope you'll enjoy it, but please do bear in mind throughout that everything I'm talking about here is stories and beliefs about magical beings that are somewhere out there in the world between humans and gods, and that is pretty exciting stuff. If you don't like the format of the episode like this, then please do let me know. I don't intend on making a habit of doing it this way around, but it's always good to hear how people find the podcast. So, that in mind, let's jump into the inexpert discussion section. As you'll almost certainly be aware, Ireland has a very close association with the fairies. Now, Firstly, while they are called fairies in English, this is of course not a perfect translation from Irish terms. There are a few different terms in Irish, but the most common that tends to be translated to fairy is either she or a's she. So, if you didn't get already that's what the episode title is referring to, now you can say a's she what you did there, and groan, groan, groan a lot, that's terrible. A's she literally means the people of the mounds, or the people of the fairy mounds. The mounds in question are the prehistoric Bronze Age and Iron Age earthworks of various types that dot Ireland's landscape. You've got tombs, old settlements, ring forts, lots of different things that the fairies are said to inhabit. Though whether the fairies are named after the mounds or vice versa is, I understand, an open question. But there's no doubt the two are very intimately bound up. The fairies are often called by more euphemistic names to avoid attracting their attention chief of which is the good people or the gentry in English, and the doini maha in Irish, which means basically the same thing. The folklore about them is very old, 
There are mentions of the Aishi dated to somewhere between the 5th and 7th century CE, so about 1,500 years ago, and they almost certainly go back further than that. When it comes to the tie between Ireland and the fairies, I think it's fair to say that few other nations have beings from myth and folklore so closely bound up with the general perception of the nation, and that's both internal and external, though the external perception is often coloured by a very particular modern image of a leprechaun, you know the one, which is certainly not always seen as a good thing in Ireland, and that depiction is not really in keeping with the traditional folklore, which you probably also suspected. But even setting aside those external perceptions, within Ireland the tie is still very strong. It's no exaggeration to say that pretty much anywhere you are on the island, you are very close to some features of the landscape with a strong connection to the fairies. But it is possible to overemphasise this, because Ireland is far from alone in having a strong tradition of fairy-like beings. For fairy is simply one term for a class of supernatural entities that crop up right across Europe and beyond. I'll be using fairy as a catch-all term here, but there are a whole range of beings that are very similar, such as elves, trolls, trows, nymphs, rusalka, gnomes, kobolds, and many, many more. All of which, like the she, have their own regional identities, but there's enough similarity in them that they can be grouped together. Now, the ultimate origins of these seem to go back a very long time and extend beyond Europe. Unfortunately, the word fairies has some serious modern baggage with it, other terms have been suggested, but none really are satisfactory, so we're kind of stuck with fairies for the moment. So I'm going to try and define fairy here, and straight out of the gate to do that, I'm going to say they aren't diminutive, sometimes they are small, but it's not typical, and they never have wings. So helpfully, they're nothing like the most common, modern image of the fairy. Defining them by appearance at all is hard, because they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, but the most representative, typical of them, are about human size and look about human. Now, if I have to be pinned down on a definition, which I suppose I've taken on the task to do this, so I should have a go at it, here's my woolly set of criteria. The fairies and their ilk in European folklore and legend are, big breath, magic using, supernatural beings that are mostly humanoid and human sized, are largely assumed to be able to turn invisible, or sometimes are invisible, are intelligent, that's key actually, in pretty much every example, human-level intelligence is an aspect of the fairies that sets them apart from other mythological creatures. They are definitely not gods, nor are they humans simply using magic. They are mostly understood to be in some way different from demons or angels as well, though in some cases those categories are more blurred. They often live either within the natural world, or they inhabit some kind of other place, sometimes directly underground, sometimes a literal other world. So to sum up, Magical, humanoid, often invisible, intelligent, associated with the natural world and or other worlds and underground. And within that broad category there's a lot of divergence. In collected folklore the definition of fairy can be stretched or contracted almost at the whims of the person using it to cover a huge amount of such beings. For instance, consider the Banshee in Ireland, the wailing harbinger of death, mostly, which I think few people would instinctively classify as a fairy. But the term literally means fairy woman, and many people will talk about it exactly like it is a fairy in the folklore. Likewise, the Merrow, the Irish merfolk, are classified as a type of fairy by W.B. Yeats. Who knows a thing or two about this? This isn't typical of how they might be thought of now, but it does show how a range of things can be made to fit under this broad fairy banner. 
Now, obviously, there's a huge amount of disparity, both temporally and geographically, in the descriptions we have of the fairies. But basically, beings like this have existed for pretty much as long as we have records. You might often hear that they are the old gods or nature spirits or something like that. I struggle with this as a useful definition, because there's a bit of truth there, certainly, but it doesn't seem to encompass the wide range of fairy beliefs. It's too reductive, and it also implies a nice linear narrative of how these spirits and old gods, over time, usually with the coming of Christianity, got changed into fairies, which doesn't seem to be how it really happened. Consider, for instance, that the Greek and Roman fairy analogues, nymphs and satyrs and other genius loci, existed alongside pagan gods, but were notably different. And this was a couple of thousand years ago, so it's not like fairies are a creation of Christianity kind of shrinking the gods. Stories of something like them exist along with the old gods. And looking at kind of the other way, thinking about later folklore of fairies, and by later I mean, you know, the last few hundred years or so, well, stories of them from then incorporate loads of stuff that has arisen much later. Take, for example, kings and queens of fairy courts, which becomes an integral part of how fairies are perceived, but has no connection to old gods or nature spirits. So fairies and their ilk are ill-understood as simply local gods or spirits. They are their own thing, subject to change, that have a background in all kinds of different beliefs and stories. So, that's kind of the broader European context, but let's talk about some of the things that are specific to Ireland, or at least not found quite as widely. Most important of these are the earthen mounds I mentioned before, the Shi, that are found all across Ireland. These have been connected to the Aishi as long as we have any records of them. They're said to live in them and around them, the two as concepts are almost inseparable. And connected to both the mounds and the fairies are the Tuatadarnan. The Tuatadarnan really require about 100 episodes of their own, but in brief, they are the old Irish gods, kind of. They are at the very least supernatural beings from Irish mythology that inhabited Ireland before humans came. And we know about them from medieval stories, and it's likely that they go back even further than that, though we can never be entirely sure. And in these medieval stories, it's a very explicit plot line, I suppose, that the gods were forced into the she-mounds by humans. In a variety of different ways, but that's pretty much how it always ends for the two a day. And in both the mythology and the later folklore, it is an oft-repeated explanation for the fairies that they are simply the two Dadanan, after they were banished from the surface world. It's worth labouring the point that this is kind of an in-story explanation. It doesn't mean that historically, people only started to tell stories of the fairies after they'd stopped believing in the two Dodanen. Consider the example about Roman gods from earlier. It does mean that for the last a thousand years or so, stories and beliefs about the fairies are now very tightly interwoven with this concept of them coming from the two Dodanen. Not only in the direct tie in the mythology, but in all the folklore, for instance, the names of some of the local fairy rulers are often the same as prominent members of the two Dodanen. So you've got this combination of the fairies, the Tuatadarnan, and the she mounds. And this takes us into another key aspect of Irish fairy lore. The existence of an otherworld. This is an absolute mainstay of fairy belief in Ireland, and in traditions of other Celtic language-speaking areas as well. And this is probably very old. Noted scholar Ronald Hutton, with some caution, says that the understanding of this otherworld, quote, 
could well represent one of the most important survivals from the old religions to the world of Christianity. Unquote. You'll probably understand this idea of another world almost instinctively, but just to break down what it is. The other world is sometimes said to be on islands off the west of Ireland. Going back a bit, that's not too uncommon, but much more often it is said to be existing in the same space as our world, but even magically hidden from it or occasionally under it, said to be accessed through those mounds and sometimes through trees and prominent hills and other interesting features of the landscape as well. And it's within this other world that the fairies are often said to reside, with the rules about how humans and fairies can cross between the worlds varying depending on the individual story, but with lots of restrictions for the humans in particular, but sometimes the fairies too. The time when the veil between the worlds is weak is a wonderfully evocative concept that crops up in Irish folklore and mythology both. W.Y. Evans Wentz describes the relationships between the worlds thus, quote, Fairyland actually exists as an invisible world within which the visible world is immersed like an island in an unexplored ocean. Unquote. And that works for me. So, all this means that Ireland is absolutely chock full with places where the fairies supposedly live or which have a connection to the other world, meaning that fairies have a very physical presence in the landscape within Ireland. So, on a day to day basis, people going about their everyday lives encounter these places and in doing so are made acutely aware of the fairies as a very tangible local phenomenon not something that was just abstracted in stories but everyone would know a place or many places in fact of the fairies and to some extent this holds true today and was even more so the case in the past there are a couple of other explanations for the fairies that crop up a fair bit in irish fairy lore Rather than being the Tuatha they are sometimes said to be a variety of fallen angel. And at other times, the fairies are dead humans. Now this doesn't kind of chime well with ideas of fairies today, even with the more refined definition of fairies in folklore I've been teasing out so far. But make no mistake, this is a very significant aspect of fairy belief, certainly by the 19th century. It took a number of forms in explaining exactly how the dead got to fairy, but quite often the other world is understood as kind of, well, an underworld. I'm going to be telling stories on both these episodes that touch on this theme. So what are Irish fairies actually like? Well, in some way there's so much range that you can only answer this by reading all the individual stories. But we can narrow things down a little bit more, and one common way to do that is to give a split between the solitary fairies on one hand and the trooping fairies on the other which is really a split between fairies which live in societies and, well, fairies that don't. Fairy societies are often said to be as developed or perhaps even more developed than human societies. They live in palaces, they have courts, they have essentially nations that go to war. But they're not always this developed, possibly not even mostly. The fairies might just live in a local mound or in a tree in a field without any of the fancy bits simply playing some music, abducting people, and otherwise causing a nuisance. And in terms of their approach to humans, you've got the whole range from helpful, irritating, downright evil and terrifying. The solitary fairies are, well, solitary. You might find them in a whole range of different places, in your home, drinking out your cellar, or maybe mending a shoe by the side of the road, or at night they may appear in a field to lead you astray, just for fun. 
This split isn't perfect, but it gives you some sense of the different types. I tentatively add a third category, as neither of these adequately describes fairies who generally exist around humanity and usually cause difficulties, but are pretty much always invisible, and often show a sign of being almost omnipresent. The fairies are always listening, as Irish storytellers Steve and Paul Lally say. These fairies, rather than being quite so physical beings, more manifest as a force of malevolent magic within the world, to be very feared. Now this kind of brings me on to the final point of this discussion section, which I've been dancing around so far. All about how people have understood what the fairies are. At one end of the spectrum, the fairies can be seen as concepts that are used for telling stories, and nothing more than that. Interesting and fun, but purely fictional. Good for a tale. And I'd include in this stories where the fairies are very clearly a metaphor for something else as well. And at the other end of the spectrum, you can understand fairies to be something very real. Something believed to exist within the world. As much as a donkey, or the feeling of loneliness, or the Christian god. Now, this split is not unusual for the stories I tell on this podcast. There's often a fine line between stories told because they're believed, and stories told because they're fun. But with fairies, I think this skews more heavily towards belief than, say, with dragons. Very few people really imagine there was a dragon at the bottom of one of their fields. The same isn't true for fairies. And this doesn't mean that people believed incredulously in everything anyone said about the fairies, for both pure storytelling and pure belief can exist together, even within the same person. For instance, it's totally plausible, and I'd suggest common, to believe that your sick cattle have been harmed by fairies because you didn't leave milk out for them, while also not believing there's a physical fairy castle with knights and horses under that hill just over there. And of course the two combine. You could tell a story about how your cow was harmed by the fairies while believing it. Douglas Hyde, prominent Irish academic, promoter of Irish language and one-time president of Ireland, illustrates this split by making a distinction between tales of fairies on the one hand and accounts of fairies on the other. He says that the accounts aren't stories for, quote, There is no sequence of incidents, no hero, no heroine, no story, unquote. Essentially, there's no plot, just factual accounts that people he talked to would pass on. Stuff like, My father once heard fairy music playing in the fort there, or a man cut the fairy bushes and six months after he was dead, etc, etc. Trying to define how much people believed and what was just a story is an absolute fool's errand, but belief there definitely was, alongside of which there has been a very healthy storytelling tradition about the fairies, and the two combine to create fairy lore. Right, so very quick summation of everything that's just been said, and then we'll have some stories. Ireland and its landscape are intimately connected with supernatural beings, the ASG, which are part of a wider European tradition of magical, intelligent, humanoid, invisible beings, which have combined with more Irish-specific aspects, such as prehistoric earthworks and Otherworld, the Tuatadarnan, and often a connection with the dead. When it comes to talking about stories, the upshot is that you get stories which combine elements that are known very well internationally, and ones that are specifically Irish. This runs the whole range from straight-up names-only changed localizations of widely known tales to completely unique accounts of real-life fairy encounters. And the myriad combinations in between give rise to Irish fairy stories and fairy lore. That's it, end of the discussion section. Let's jump into some stories. 
I've not selected them by any attempt to give an overview of all the different Tails types, because there are so many, but hopefully this should get you a bit more of a handle on what exactly the fairies are. So let's kick off with our introductory tale, The Fairies' Revenge. This is one of the more typical type of stories of the fairies. Though there is a great variety of tales, it is stories such as these that were passed around the people of the land when they met together. Stories such as these that were passed to their children as a matter of fact, as a warning. The way that one might be taught the Green Cross Code at later times when the motor car is the most dangerous thing around. Everyone needs to know tales like this, because understanding the proper way to deal with the fairies and the proper way not to is an important life skill. Now where exactly this took place is unrecorded, and like many stories of the fairies, things just like this have happened all across Ireland since at least the time when the Christians came and tried to banish the fairies from the land. A task in which they met with some superficial success, but which by and large on the whole remained incomplete. In many ways, those earlier saints had achieved the equivalent of a child who, when asked to tidy their room, gives up very quickly, gathers up everything remaining, shoves it all under the duvet and calls it done, hoping no one will notice all the lumps. In Ireland, the lumps came in the form of the numerous earthworks that dotted the countryside. Some of these were the great barrows that dominate the landscape, tombs of prestigious size and note. But while there were many such... Far more common are the rafts or duns, commonly and spoilerifically referred to as fairy forts. These are raised mounds of varying size, usually grass-covered now, and made of earth, stone, or some combination of the two. An incredible 40,000 have been identified in Ireland, or one every two square kilometres, in a variety of states of preservation. Some are large, obvious circular structures, raised embankments complete with ditches around them but most are but piles of stones, often overgrown with grass and wildflowers and even trees. Little rocky areas that you could easily overlook as almost natural if you were in use to the country. But that was not a luxury that those living near the rafts could afford. They knew each and every raft very well indeed. And there was a simple rule. Leave well alone. Don't disrupt the area. Even if it's on your land in the way of your ploughing, even if you really want to clear it, to cut the bush just to take some firewood. Don't do that. Simple, easy, do not touch the raft. Now don't get me wrong, not touching the raft would not ensure your safety. Oh no, no, no. The fairies were not as straightforward to deal with as all of that. An easier life it would be if they were. But disturb a raft, and their attention would fall on you as surely as night follows dumbly scrolling through social media for hours and wondering where it all went wrong. And now let's talk about the hawthorn a little. A hawthorn is a relatively short tree that bursts into white flower in the spring and brings beautiful blossom and a strong scent to many a country field and lane. Often it grows into beautiful hedgerows filled with the calls of small nesting birds. And I know well because there's one just by my house and the birds are always singing their little lungs out in the most adorable way. But the single hawthorn tree in a field, that is known to be the abode of the fairies. You won't usually see them there, especially during the day, just like you won't usually see them at the raft. But if there's a solitary hawthorn standing proud, then there they surely will be. 
And so the best thing to do with a hawthorn tree is leave well alone. Don't even take flowers from it for garlands or anything like that. Don't cut from it. Certainly don't dig it up. Just let it be. Say there was a hawthorn growing on a raft. Well, I hope I've made it clear there was only one sensible course of action. Leave very well alone. Times two. No, leave very well alone squared. And there was such a raft with a hawthorn growing from it. Now this might be somewhere in the farmlands of County Kildare, or perhaps in the more rugged scenic landscape of County Wicklow. But wherever it was, there was the raft with a beautiful hawthorn growing from it. Enter the Johnstons, farmers, new to the area, flash with cash, for farmers at least. They bought the farmland on which the raft stood. The farm was admittedly in a sorry state, the old farmhouse a wreck, and they bought it as a doer-upper. You know, a bit of a project, as some people unfortunately say. Now Mr and Mrs Johnston and their baby were from the north of Ireland, and with a name like Johnston, typical of Ulster Scots, I think it's no leap of faith to assume that their heritage made them less attuned to the ways of the fairies. For they saw the scenic location of that raft on the farm, the hawthorn growing proud from it, and they did not immediately think, leave well alone squared. No, no, they thought, that looks like a fine place for the grand new farmhouse we want to build. It has scenic views of the valley. It isn't given over to existing farmland, for some reason, and all they'd have to do was take up the stones, chop down the tree and get to work. Their new neighbours had no qualms about warring them against it. They laid it out plain and simple, no cryptic, slightly ominous but unspecified mumbled warnings from them, a la many a folk horror film. That is a fairy raff, they said. That's a hawthorn. That place is a fairy place. They've even been seen there in the past. If you disturb it, bad things will happen to you, categorically. The fairies will come for you. They laid it out all clear so the Johnstons couldn't just brush it off as incoherent ramblings. Look, I know you don't get it, but the fairies are real and exceptionally dangerous, even when they've got no particular reason to be. And when they do have reason, well, there's no hope for you. Just trust us. Please leave it be. But the Johnstons laughed at this, between themselves at least, though they may have given more politely humoured responses to their advisers, the cursory nodding along and Yes, yes, of course. Oh, yes, I'm sure, I'm sure. We'll be careful. But they tore up the remnants of the raft, chopped the hawthorn and burnt it. And they built themselves a perfect farmhouse. Now, I know it's kind of tempting to think of these people as fools, but ask yourself... Really, deep down, would you have done differently? How much do you believe in the fairies, really? Put yourself in their shoes. They'd never seen the fairies. Do they want to inconvenience themselves for some silly superstition? Might you just have also disregarded it? Imagine someone told you you couldn't use a room in your house, but only because of the fairies. What would you actually do? Now, the farmhouse they constructed was not simply practical and functional, but aesthetically pleasing as well. A perfect fit for the landscape it looked out upon. And their investment in their land paid off, for the farm prospered, and the Johnsons were happy in their newfound home, 
their baby growing into a healthy young boy. Soon they became well known as one of the wealthiest farms in the area. Meanwhile, the people of the community, appalled by the behaviour of their new neighbours, tutted and gossiped and waited for their inevitable toppling. But when one year turned to two, turned to three, and no one had prospered as well as they had, well, some people did begin to change their tune, began to doubt, began to develop new narratives. Perhaps, some whispered, the Johnstons had struck some kind of deal with the fairies, or maybe they had discovered a pot of gold in the fairy raft, and it was this that fueled their, relatively, lavish lifestyles. And so it went. Until. One day a woman came to the house, when the cows were milking. A little old woman, wrapped in a suspiciously fine blue cloak. She asked politely if she could have but a porringer of milk. If, like me, you've never heard of a porringer before, and you thought at the back of your mind it was something to do with champagne, well, it turns out that's a Bollinger. I don't know my champagne, probably no surprise to you. But no, a porringer is a small bowl, usually with two handles. It's not a large amount of milk to ask for. Nevertheless, it was too much to give away for Mrs Johnston, who curtly dismissed the request. You'll have nothing from me. I'll have no tramps in this house, she said and then got some of her servants, for of course the rich had servants back then, to chase the woman away. Which the servants did, with great reluctance, not only because they felt bad about refusing the charity, but also because though Mrs Johnston didn't recognise the significance of that fine blue cloak, they thought that they might. It wasn't long after this little encounter, a day or so, when the prize heifer of the Johnston's herd began to sicken. It was unexpected for the cow had been well and well looked after, but the mysterious illness spread quickly. Within a matter of weeks, she had lost her horns, and then her teeth, and then she had finally died. The gossip started up again then, and the servants were quick to link the death to the woman who has refused her milk. Word of this got back to Mrs Johnston, who seized upon the idea. But rather than seeing it as the working of the fairies, like her ignorant servants thought, she was sure that the spiteful tramp had poisoned her cow. So when the old woman appeared again, right at the door as Mrs Johnston was spinning flax, Mrs Johnston leapt up angrily to confront her. But not before the old woman had made another demand. This time, your maids are baking cakes in the kitchen. Give me some off the griddle to carry away with me. She said it firmly, but politely enough. Her voice level. This was an opportunity. Now as fairies go, this was quite generous, I would say. The raff and the hawthorn taken down, the milk not offered. But another chance to at least partly redeem oneself. Pretty lenient by most standards, and certainly that of the fairies. Mrs Johnston didn't see it that way, and she was not so calm and collected and level. You poisoned my cow! Do you have any idea how much she was worth? You couldn't understand! You killed her, and now you come here demanding things from me. Get out! Get out! And if you ever set foot here again, I'll see to you. And she called for her servants and demanded they drive the old woman off with sticks. Thankfully for them, the servants didn't need to carry out the threat, for the old woman left, her face betraying no emotion. There would be no next chance.
The Johnstons' child was a healthy, happy boy who loved playing in the great outdoors and was growing up good and strong, having beaten the usual bouts of childhood illness that were common at the time. He spent his days exploring the farm and the lands beyond it and was popular with the servants and his parents alike. Though young, five or six, he was already being taught the skills he would need to run the farm, which would of course one day fall to him to do so. The day after the woman in blue had asked for cakes, he was noticeably less cheery than usual. Sickness wasn't unusual, of course, but he didn't seem sick exactly, just exhausted and withdrawn. After the third or fourth day of this, Mrs Johnston tried to talk to her son about it. And, after much coaxing, he told her that he wasn't sleeping, that he had bad dreams. That night his mother stayed up, and she heard the boy whimpering when he should have been sleeping, then crying out as if in pain. She lit a candle and went into his room. By the dim light she could see he was unconscious but clearly agitated in his sleep, his eyes flicking rapidly back and forth. He rolled one way, then the other, was muttering, No, no. Disturbed, she went to hug her child, and his eyes snapped open suddenly, looked up at her, and she saw pain and fear in his face. Oh, ma'am, they're here. They're hurting me. No one's here. It's just me. It's okay. I'm here. Shh, shh. No, no, they're here. The fairies, they're here. No, no, lad, it was just a dream. It was just a dream. They want, they want, they want, they say they want milk, milk and griddle cakes. Please, ma'am, give them milk in a porringer and griddle cakes. Please, they want them. At the mention of those two very specific items, Mrs Johnston's blood ran cold. Fear descended suddenly in that small, dark room. The flicker of the candlelight holding her terrified child in her arms, and for just an instant... She thought she saw something, black, like a big shadow, but a shadow sitting on the edge of the bed. She gave out a cry, and then it wasn't there. Never had been. And in her arms, her son whimpered. He wasn't any better the next day, hardly functioning at all. His eyes began to look sunken. And the next night, Mrs Johnson left a porringer of milk and two griddle cakes, freshly baked, on a table by his bed. She hadn't told Mr Johnson about what the boy had said. Didn't feel able. She also didn't go into the boy's room that night, even when she heard him cry out. Didn't want to risk meeting them. The next morning, the milk and the cakes were gone. Obviously, he'd eaten them in the night. He must have. Of course. But though she provided the food dutifully every night after that, she had missed her chance. This was too little, too late. While her son had done nothing wrong, as neither had the cow for that matter, the wrath of the fairies was no perfectly fair system of jurisprudence where only the guilty suffered. A far more primal vengeance was this. And though the fairies were fed every night, the young Johnston lads sickened still. Both father and mother were soon at their wits' end as they watched their son diminish day by day, unable to do much of anything. He would talk little, but when he did speak he spoke only of the fairies, even in the daylight. I go dancing at night to the hills, he claimed. Dancing around, and then in the morning they bring me back. Dancing and dancing all night long, and then they pinch me, it hurts so much. They might be here, they might be here now. 
and then he'd look around, terrified, a wild look in his eyes, and burst out crying until all the tears were cried out of him, and he'd shake in terror. Despite saying this, he still slept in his bed, and his mother and father now maintained a vigil at it as best they could. The boy tossed and turned all night long, but he didn't physically go anywhere, wasn't whisked away, and that he was just lying there was perhaps the only thing keeping Mrs Johnson's thread of sanity from snapping entirely. The one curiosity was that the food was always eaten, and though they'd been at his bedside all night long, no one ever saw him eat it. One night the boy sat up screaming and suddenly began begging the parents to send for a priest. Eyes bulging with terror, he babbled. I need a priest to get them away. Send for a priest. They're on my chest. They'll crush me to death. I, I need a priest. Now where the boy had gotten that notion from, they didn't know. But going significantly against all their own beliefs, the Johnstons sent for a priest. Priests weren't something they had any truck with, what with them not being of the Catholic persuasion but their sense of what they knew about the world was crumbling with every desperate pronouncement from their suffering son. They would do anything. For their many faults of ignorance and of casual cruelty to strangers, they loved their child. The priest came to them, regarded the boy. I think he knew, that priest, knew what stage this had reached, knew enough to understand the limits of his own power but he used what power he did have to make things easier. He prayed over the boy, sprinkled holy water around him, and very quickly this calmed the child. They're leaving, he said, and for the first time in weeks, he slipped into a seemingly peaceful, untroubled sleep. Deep relief came over the Johnstons. It was over. Despite their initial misgivings as to his faith, the parents thanked the priest profusely as he left. They were beginning to reevaluate everything. But the priest didn't return their almost euphoric joy, tried to wave away their thanks. Oh no, it, it was nothing. It, it's really all I could do. I'm sorry. When the boy awoke the next morning, he was certainly peaceful, content a blissful look on his face. I had such a beautiful dream. The fairies went away and instead angels came to me. I walked in a garden, oh, such a garden like one you've never seen. He smiled dreamily up. The fairies are gone and the angels, the angels are going to come back and take me to the garden. Then he didn't say much at all or give any indication of wanting to rise from the bed for he was waiting for the angels. The boy's words didn't bring the comfort to his parents that they clearly did to him. Rather, the relief that they felt the previous night was washed away, and a feeling dark and heavy lodged itself in their very cause. It was a weight that would never be lifted from them. They watched the boy that night, holding on to a tiny kernel of hope, it was extinguished when their clock, an expensive, extravagant callback to their wealthier lives, when the clock struck midnight. Then their son awoke, sat straight up, put his arms around his mother, who started to weep as he said, The angels are here, before falling slowly back to the bed, all the life gone from him.
he was buried soon after, and Mr Johnston was broken by this, and he ceased to tend to his farm. The crops failed and the cows died, and it is unclear if it was due to grief or at the hands of the fairies directly, but a year later he laid in a grave next to his sons. Mrs Johnston had some strength to her though. She lived on, but not there. There with the fairies and the people of the land both against her. Back she went to the north, to where she had come from. And I dare say that though she survived, her life was no happy one. Though the land found of her owners, no one would live in that fine house. So it was pulled down, the stones in the foundation marking clearly the place of the raft. The grass grew over them, and soon the raft was back had re-established itself, and with it the fairies returned. Folk could see and hear them sometimes, dancing in the moonlight, playing their deadly fairy music, and laughing. And so the raft remained, and will likely remain so forevermore, or at least until someone wealthy and ignorant tries the fairies again. Short discussion before we move on to the next tale. That story, The Fairy's Revenge, was taken from a collection by Lady Wilde, and yes, that's Oscar Wilde's ma'am. She did a lot of work in popularising Irish folk tales, but she has fallen under criticism in that she was from a class very far from the peasants whose story she wrote about, that she didn't really talk to the peasants herself, and that she didn't know any Irish. A criticism accurately levelled at a great many 19th century folklorists. How much of it is her words and how much of the original I can't say, but it does correspond to similar accounts of people punished after disturbing a raft. Stepping around its provenance for a moment, you can see that this tale contains things that are both uniquely Irish, the raft, and tropes that crop up in fairy tales more internationally, such as the young boy dancing with the fairies at night, which crops up frequently, including in the Scottish tale Kate Crackernuts, which I've told on the podcast. But it's interesting to me as a story because there is a potential ambiguity in it with relation to the existence of the fairies. Now I generally take stories at face value for the purposes of storytelling. If something supernatural happens, well, that supernatural things happens. But I think it's interesting to note that, as you've almost certainly realised yourself, that it's possible to read this entire story completely mundanely, no fairies involved, an analogy for simple illness along with coincidence. Imagine that the woman who cursed the cow wasn't a fairy, the cow death a coincidence, or even that she did poison it. Say the boy then heard about the milk and the cakes being refused from the servants. He heard what the fairies do to people who don't provide cake and milk, and then he put two and two together, got an illness, and then attributed it to the fairies. There is, just about, if you squint, a perfectly rational explanation for this. Or to kind of turn that on its head, it's something that could, maybe, possibly, have happened. Exactly like this. And if it had. If a fairy fort had been dug up, a boy had died asking for the cakes and milk refused to the fairies, well, if you didn't believe in the fairies already, you might just be tempted to. And if you did, well, you'd understand perfectly just what was going on. I think that's just worth noting to see how stories and belief might link to each other. But if the fairies in that story are just about rationalisable away by big city cynics with no soul like myself, Well, others most definitely are not. We've seen how fairies can harm. Let's see now how sometimes they can be helpful. So to our second story, the Kildare Puka. (laughs) 
Now for this story we're definitely in Kildare, but where in Kildare I can't tell you because the story has that quaint and kind of adorable feature that crops up even in old novels, where rather than writing the place name, there's just a first letter and then a line where the rest of the letter should be to indicate that this is some real place and anonymity is being preserved here. I haven't tried to work out where it is or anything like that because, well, I want to respect that anonymity. But wherever it is, it's set at a big house not like the farmhouse of the previous story, a big landowner's house with many rooms, the kind that if it survived to the present day is either open for visitors with a quaint and expensive cafe, or is a hotel with its eye firmly on the hosting of corporate functions. But we do have an exact year. It's 1798, and the Irish Rebellion is in full swing. Kildare was the site of a massive resistance to the brutal British rule. It was a time of hope for many, and of violence. But for the man who owned that large house, well for him, an Anglo-loyalist, he wanted to take a long vacation away from the property, in England, until he hoped it would be safe for him to return, taking his family away with him. In his absence, the servants stayed on in the house, and kept it much as it was. I suspect many of them hoped the master would never be coming back. Those months should have been some good times, and in many ways they were, some of the best times the servants would ever know with just one wrinkle. The sounds that came from the kitchen at night as they went to their beds, the banging of the door, the clattering of the fire irons, the clash of pots and pans and dishes of all sorts. Now these folk knew all about leaving whatever it was well alone. It might be a ghost, it might be a fairy, it might be something else entirely new. Whatever it was, they wanted no part of it. During the day, the kitchen was fine to be in, and as long as everyone remembered to vacate it as the light drew in, well, no problems. Were it not for the scullery boy, who one day fell asleep in the warm hearth. Usually he slept with the horses, and would never have been allowed such a luxury as sleeping indoors. But things were different now, and no one bothered him. And if anyone knew he was there, they clearly quite forgot about him and the kitchen. He slept good and soundly into the night. Right up until the moment he was awoken with a jolt by the sound of the kitchen door opening. Memories of the sounds of the smashing came to him immediately, and the boy watched the door with wide eyes as in it came. It was a fairy, a real solid and tall fairy at that. No diminutive, wispy, invisible thing this. The poor scullery lad's teeth started to chatter in fright as he beheld it, in all its awfulness. And he recognised it too. The head of a donkey on a hairy human body with a tail behind it, and donkey legs and feet, but hands with opposable thumbs like that of a man. This was a puka. It would see him, and it would eat him up. That's what they did. He shook violently. The puka scratched its huge, fuzzy ear, and it gave a big yawn as it seemed to regard the dishes. Then it sighed and muttered, human words coming from a mouth that shouldn't be able to form them. Suppose I best get started again, then. The fairy had an aura one would not really expect, of exhaustion, resignation, and resentfulness. 
but this was all lost on the terrified scullery boy, who was concentrating far too much on trying not to breathe, trying not to shake. But he didn't have it in him. He knew he must be giving himself away. Slowly, the tired-seeming creature lit a fire and then filled a large pot with water and put it over the fire, as if this was its home and it was a servant. He's going to cook me in it. He's going to kill me and chop me up and put me in it. And that was no ridiculous fear, by the way, for this was precisely the sort of thing that fairies might do. When the puka approached him in the half, he had no energy to resist as it pulled him out and lifted him bodily into the air. The strange hybrid creature regarded him, stuck out its bottom lip in the manner of a donkey, a look that somehow conveyed an ill-concealed contempt, and then it unceremoniously dropped him right back down again. A short, painful fall, to be sure, but not the biting or rending of flesh he had been expecting. Even though the creature could talk, it clearly had nothing to say to the boy. It clopped around the kitchen, slowly and methodically collecting up all the cutlery and crockery as it went taking them to the pot on the heat. The fire went down and the water came off the boil. The puka tested it gingerly to make sure it was cool enough. And then he proceeded to wash the dishes, with all the rigour and none of the joy of a housewife in a dated fairy liquid commercial. Though seemingly out of any direct danger, the scullery boy daren't move. He dumbly observed the strange domestic parody playing out in front of him. Once the washing was done, the puka replaced everything neatly on the shelves, swept the room thoroughly and raked up the fire. Then, just before he left, he squatted down by the boy, who shuddered again, and the puka let one of his ears down, raised the other up, and gave a cheeky little mischievous grin. Then he left, by the door, slamming it with a force that shook the whole house. The next morning the servants of the house were in uproar as the boy related everything he had seen. Of course they had known something was going on, but they'd been trying to ignore it, even pretend it wasn't happening. But this, well this put it front and centre of everyone's minds, but it also wasn't exactly the worst scenario they'd been imagining. Far from it actually. The nature of this creature seemed good for them. It was a scullery maid who said it first. If this here puka's going to be doing all the cleaning right, well, why don't we leave everything for him to do, and not bother with anything ourselves? And you know, this met pretty quickly with fairly universal agreement. Them's the wisest words you've ever said, I reckon, came one appreciative remark. That night, they tried it, swept not a crumb, discarded dirty dishes about thought to wash them, and to bed they went, with, it must be said, some underlying trepidation from the less foolhardy, who had a bit of a worry that the puka might object to this new level of mess left in the kitchen. Happy to do a little work, but not all of this. Those people lay awake nervously, but the sounds from the kitchen seemed the same as any night. And when they went down in the morning... Well, it sparkled, just like little lights had been drawn on it and some filter called Magic Clean had been placed across the entire room. If anything, giving more work to the puka had made the results even more impressive. And so it continued for many a night, and without a master, and with a good deal of the more difficult tasks being done for them, this was a true highlight of the servants' entire lives, 
especially the women on who the tasks of the kitchen tend to fall hardest. A truly blissful period it was, and fear of the puka diminished considerably, replaced with thankfulness for him, and sometimes a bit of a gentle mocking of the idea of this ridiculous-looking fairy so happy to work for them, so different from the terrifying beings they'd been warned of. Just a less drugged-up Bojack horseman bumbling round in your kitchen, doing everyone's work for them. And as the fear died, curiosity set in. The scullery lad had, of course, done very well repeating his tale, embellishing it with every telling, making himself out to have been very brave and clever in his premeditated plan. And oh, it was a good thing it wasn't hostile, for the fairy that was, for it would have got what was coming to it. Of course, he'd milk that for everything it was worth. And another lad, a stable boy, an actual brave one to his credit, wanted in on this action, wanted the attention that the scullery lad had. And he was also genuinely curious. He wanted the thrill of seeing a fairy in the flesh. Let's give this lad a name, because there's too many characters with no names in this story. Daniel, let's call him Daniel. And so, a couple of weeks into the great unwashing, one night, Daniel waited up in the kitchen. Sure enough, an hour or so after darkness had fallen, in came the puka, thumping the door in its usual way. Dan was shocked to actually see it, its strangely formed body and mismatched head, but the magic of the moment was somewhat diminished as it walked right past him, paying him little heed, and he felt somewhat slighted. Regaining his composure, he asked, You there, if it ain't too much of a liberty to ask, why do you do it? Come here, every night, and do half a day's work for the lasses for nought. Without pausing, the puka answered in its clear human voice from its clearly unhuman jaws and throat. Not too much to ask at all, I'll tell you, it said, still continuing its chores as it spoke. You see, I used to work as a servant. You did? Looking like that? No, when I was alive, I mean. And matter-of-factly, the puka told his tale. I ain't always looked like this, boy. I was human once, and I worked here well before your time. And I was lazy, and I was work-shy, and I tried to get out of every task that was ever sent for me. And I was damn good at it. But one day, I died. And this, this is the punishment that was laid upon me that I was to return here every night, clean this all up, and when I'm finished out into the cold night I have to go. And get this, I have to stand there from midnight to sunrise. Then I disappear, and I'm back here opening that door. Daniel took a moment to absorb this, this first-hand insight into the afterlife, which was not quite in keeping with any of the accounts of the churches as he'd heard it. Confirmation of how the system worked and that Death was not the end. It was quite a lot to take on board, but he was not surprised that the fairy was a dead man, for he'd heard such things said before. The horse-headed creature went on, and was proper getting into bemoaning its fate now. It's not so bad, I suppose, in the summer, but of a winter, well, it gets right cold. Naked like I am. Listeners, please do not think about the horseman naked. Do not think about the horseman being naked. Naked as I am, facing into some terrible storms, I can still feel the cold, you know. He seemed increasingly upset about the whole thing, but didn't want to stop his chores during the conversation. Daniel was struggling for something to say, but he was a decent lad as well as brave, 
Well, that's pretty awful, isn't it? You're doing all this for us and suffering so. Look, is there anything we could do for you? You know, ease your suffering for a bit? The Pooka considered for a moment. Hmm, I've never really thought about it, but you know what? I reckon a coat might help me on those winter nights. One of those quilted ones, you know? Helps keep the cold off, just make things a little easier. I don't know where you'll get a coat to fit this, though. And he indicated his strangely shaped body. Oh, I'm sure that's too much to ask. No, 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 I tell you, said the kindly Daniel. We'd be the ungratefulest people in the world if we didn't at least try to help you out, given all that you've been doing for us. I will see what I can do, and I'm pretty sure we'll be able to help you out. And with that, he left the puka to get on with it. The next morning, Daniel explained the situation to the rest of them. And would you know it, but three nights later and the lad was back, with a couple of others too, and an unusual looking coat. The door slammed and the puka walked in right on time, to be presented with the coat. And for the first time, a look of happiness graced his strange features. They helped him into it, and with a little pulling here and a little tugging there, it fit nice and snug. The puka was absolutely delighted, walked to the mirror, did a little turn. Will you look at that, I look like a fine gentleman. I can't thank you enough for this. You have made me very happy indeed. And he bowed his head gently to them, and then said, Good night to you all, and went to walk out the door. Daniel objected. But you're going too soon, the the sweeping, the dishes. In the doorway, the puka turned, brought his hands together. Ah, you see, must have forgotten to tell you something. My punishment was only till I was thought worthy to receive a suitable reward for the work done. He indicated the coat. Something just like this, in fact. And he smiled a toothy smile that only a donkey could gave a very donkeyish braying laugh and left. And that's the lot of it. This story, The Kildare Pooka, came from a collection from Patrick Kennedy, a County Wexford-born teacher, bookseller and folklore collector, from an 1867 work of his called Legendary Fictions of the Irish Celts. And he said it was told to him by a girl in Kilcock. Though the theme of fairies being the dead crops up a bit, this story is a very atypical one of a pooka, which is usually a much more terrifying and violent creature. The word puka actually crops up very widely indeed, with variants in Welsh, Breton and Cornish folklore, and in English folklore the fairy name Puck, as per Midsummer Night's Dream, is also related to puka, though the word is originally thought to have come from Old Irish, so it goes back a very long way. Kennedy notes the unusualness of the puka and says, in fact, quote, Everyone knows the puka does not confound to household drudgery, but the town folk would give the sprite in question no other name, and in consequence, the present editor of the tale does not feel entitled to take any liberties with it. Unquote. Now, this story is not one unique to Ireland. Some of the individual details, certainly, the being dead bit, for instance, but 
Fairy Does Work Until Given Clothes is a Europe-wide tale about fairies and their analogues. The Shoemaker and the Elves is probably the most famous example. I've even covered one on the podcast before in the story of Robin Goodfellow. And that dates back some 400 years before this one. And that's not me even trying to find the oldest version of this tale. But what appeals to me about this particular one, in kind of like a nerdy folklore way, is that this gives a good explanation for why gifting new clothes to a household spirit sends it away. Because usually that is not explained, or it's given a rationalisation that doesn't really make sense particularly. That the fairy is so offended that they leave, or so happy that they leave. But here it's spelled out in no uncertain terms, and I like that. It also might be worth mentioning that this is one of a number of stories of fairies internationally that seem similar to later accounts of poltergeists. Anyway, I'll talk a bit more in the next episode about the fairies and the dead and the relationship between them. But for now, let's have one more story of the fairies to finish off this episode. The Tale of Nora Mackay and the Fairies It was the middle of a cold, snowy winter night when a knock came on the door of her small, two-roomed cottage. A loud and urgent knocking. She was fast asleep, but upon hearing it, she was awake and ready within mere moments. She hadn't been expecting it this night, could never predict it, but she was always ready for it when it came. She was dressed soon enough and had her bag in her hand ready to go. Somewhere a woman was in desperate need of her help. It was the only reason the knock would come in the night, and Nora was always ready. She opened the door to find a man with a large white horse standing behind him. He was not someone she recognised, but that in itself was not too unusual. But what was strange was the finery of his dress, mirrored by the exquisite decoration of the horse, which was bedecked with jewels that shone brightly by the light of the beautifully ornate lantern he carried. This was no relative of any of the women who were in Nora's charge. This man had come from a very well-off household indeed. Nora Mackay? That's me. Your skills are needed. By whom? By Queen Nula. King Fionvar has asked for you by name, for you are known to be the best midwife in all of County Galway. Nora did her very best not to be surprised. The Queen of the Fairies, summoning her, of all people. Nora was a poor woman, and there were many other midwives around who the rich would call on, who catered for the fine ladies, and by consequence were far richer themselves. The women that she looked after were as poor as herself, or poorer still. But that meant that in her many years practising her profession, she had truly seen it all. And while she'd never think of herself as the best, she certainly knew her trade. There was a stirring of distinct pride within her, that she had been recognised by none other than the king of the fairies himself. But if he was calling for her, it must be serious indeed. She picked up her bag, looked the fairy man in the eye, said, well, we'd best be going. And she mounted the horse behind him, and they rode off into the night. Now, you might be wondering, just a quick interjection here, there were multiple fairy courts in Ireland at this time. Finvara Nuala's court was in the west of the country, covering the province of Connacht, 
with his palace based at Nochmar, so he wasn't king of all the fairies, just the fairies in roughly this quarter of Ireland, but still a very lofty figure. They rode for a short while until they came to the hill of Nochmar, blanketed in snow and lit up dazzling in the moonlight. They paused for a moment, and then the horse broke into a gallop, which took it straight into the side of the hill. There was no gap into which they rode. One moment they were riding straight at the hill, and then they were in a darkened space beneath it. A long tunnel, Nora assumed, though she couldn't make sight of the walls. It was very dark indeed, and the ride went on for a long time, and Nora even began to grow a little scared by the oppressiveness of it all. Without warning, they burst out into a whole other place, light and warm, no snow or night here. And right in front of them was a palace of size and splendour greater than Nora had ever seen, or believed was possible. Palace that shined and sparkled. But she had little time to take all that in, for the horse had arrived at the great door to the building, and the rider was already helping her dismount. Female fairies, looking just like women, but the most perfect, beautiful, glamorous women that had ever existed rushed forward. The expression on their faces was grave. They didn't mince words. You must hurry, it's not going well. And up a grand staircase they took her to a vast room, a great bedroom, and on the bed therein was a woman. Queen of the fairies she might be, a terrifying, powerful figure, but now she looked just like a woman, a woman of the type that Nora had seen before, terrified out of her wits in great pain, going through the worst moment of her long, long life. Nora set to work. Now it's a very reasonable question to ask, why do the fairies need human midwives? For this is not just something that happens now, it happens many times. Even if we assume that despite their wildly different natures, the biology is basically the same, and there are enough stories of fairy-human hybrid children that that kind of makes sense, why would they call for a human? Well, I don't know exactly, but here's my basic theory. This is not from anything in the story, I'm just going off on one a little here, so permit me that. We know that the fairies can live a very long time. King Finvara, for instance, is mentioned as one of the Tuadadanan, dating to before the humans came to Ireland and forced the Shi underground. That would make him, at youngest, about 3,000 years old. And despite these massive lifespans, there aren't fairies everywhere, which makes me think that they don't give birth very often at all. Humans, on the other hand, in their short lives, can quickly become an expert on the subject, a single midwife witnessing tens, hundreds of births and using knowledge passed down from her ancestors who've seen many more. So when it comes to the possible permutations of what can go wrong, humans have just seen more, and more recently as well. So when fairy births go right, great. But when they go wrong, well the fairies don't have a lot of experience with it, or examples to draw on. And if there wasn't humans, I'm sure this would just lead to great suffering. But when you live on an island with a species that are popping out left, right and centre and has experts in the field who you can very easily kidnap or even just politely ask as in this case, well then, why wouldn't you consult them? 
Hours passed in a blink of an eye, for Nora was focused every second on her task. Things had not been good at all when she arrived. But when it was all over, the Queen had a healthy baby boy, who cried, then slept like any normal human child. Nora stayed a few more days in the palace after that, looking after the new mother and her son, and the fairies provided her with food and drink more sumptuous than any she had ever enjoyed before, and they were ever so thankful to her, kind and gracious. Now Nora was overwhelmed with the place, but she did a little explore of it in some free time she had. The fairies tended to leave her alone. She noticed many strange and wondrous things which she barely had the language to describe. She was far away from the Galway she knew here, but she also knew that in some other sense, she was very much still in Galway. Among the many wonders, Nora noticed a curious thing, which caught her attention. Whenever one of the fairy women left, presumably to go back to the mortal world, they would go to a font just inside the door of the palace. There they would dip a fingertip into the water and rub it onto their eyes. Out of curiosity, Nora tried this once, rubbing it gingerly onto her own right eye. She wasn't sure what she expected. For the world to look more glamorous, perhaps? But nothing seemed to happen, so she left it. Now after a few more days had passed and it was clear that mother and baby were going to be fine, the fairy queen gave Nora payment. In human money, somewhat to Nora's surprise. Ten pounds, which was enough to get Nora a good cow with change left over. It would not make her super wealthy, as maybe she had hoped, but it would change her life considerably for the better. And that was that, off she was sent. She hadn't learnt much of the fairies in her time with them, save for how impressive they were, and she had never even set her eyes upon the fairy king. But she knew now with certainty that they were here at Nokmar, and that they ate very well indeed. Off she was sent with the same rider who had brought her, and she was left back at a small cottage with only her payment to show for her trip under the hill. Nora's story doesn't quite end there. The next few weeks were good for her. She got a cow. Talk went around that she had had some kind of experience with the fairies, and this only increased her prestige. And soon people were going out of the way to give her a little bit more than she'd had before. She was well respected. She got on with her life, didn't think too much about her time with the fairies, for fear that her desire to be back there eating that food would be too much. And she had certainly done well enough for a few days' work. One day she was shopping in the market in Tume, when she saw one of the fairy women from the castle. Just there, looking around the market as if it wasn't anything. She was shocked to see the fairy in such a mundane location, with humans passing back and forth, the bustle of trade all around her. So she went over. How's the young boy getting on? she asked. The fairy woman regarded Nora with a look that was slightly horrified, slightly confused. She tilted her head. You see me? It's me, Nora Mackay. I delivered the young prince. Recognition came across the woman's face. Ah, right. Ah, the young prince is very well. 
do something for me, would you, Nora? Close one eye. Nora was taken aback, but closed her left eye, so she was just looking at the fairy woman with the right. The one that she had put the fairy water on. Still see me? asked the woman. Nora nodded. Let's hope for your sake it's not both. Close the other. A little worried now, Nora obeyed, closed her right eye, and the fairy woman vanished. Nora gasped and opened her eye again, to see the fairy woman back, smiling. Aha! And then, in a swift motion, she bent down to Nora and blew straight into her right eye. There was a sharp pain as Nora heard her say, Now you will never see us again. The fairy woman disappeared right in front of Nora, and so too did all the sight from Nora's right eye. She lived a long time after that, well regarded as the best midwife in all of Galway. But she was, forevermore, blind in her right eye. And that's the end of the last story for today. I mostly got that story from a translation by 20th century storyteller Eileen O'Fuelown of a story recorded in the late 19th century. And I made a few changes based on other versions of this story and removed some extraneous details that didn't add a lot to it. This is another story that crops up a lot, both in Irish folklore but much wider, with versions of pretty much this exact story from across not only the UK and Ireland but also Germany, France, Scandinavia, basically all across Northern Europe, with even more tales that include the elements separately, the midwife and the fairy water or ointment as it often is called. It's so common that this fairy midwife tale has its own category in the great folktale classification system, the Arne Thompson. This water or ointment put on the eye crops up a lot in old fairy legends, and I like it as a kind of neat way to explain fairy invisibility. There are a few different versions of what the ointment does. In this story we see that it isn't needed to see the fairies, presumably they only turn invisible at will, but they themselves need the ointment to see each other when they are going to turn invisible. But there are other stories where you need it to see the fairies at all, and yet others where it's quite different, and rather than letting you see the fairies, it strips away their glamour. And when you put it on, rather than a beautiful fairy standing in front of you, there might be something quite horrific. Interestingly, seeing the fairies shopping in the market is almost always a factor, and there seems to be a general implication from this that the fairies can be around us all the time, even in such mundane settings. We just can't see them. So there are three tales of Irish fairy lore, with bits specific to Ireland, and bits that also crop up in international tales, which I think gives a sense of both how the fairies can be seen to be very much a part of Irish tradition, and also part of a much larger fairy tradition. We've had quite enough discussion so far so I'm going to leave that there. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode, do let me know. A massive thanks once again to all my patrons, I'm absolutely delighted with the support you've given me. Thanks to Megan who has joined up since the last episode. If you want to support then go look me up on Patreon, you get six members episodes now and there's a new one on variants of the Welsh Wild Hunt coming out later this month. Also as ever thank you for all the kind reviews. Next episode, we're sticking with this theme, continuing to look at the world of Irish fairies, delving into fairy music and dead changelings. 
See you then. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Mm-hmm.